Hi folks, Steve here. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Could you do me a favor and click on the follow or subscribe button? That way new episodes will be delivered to you as soon as they go live. Like Ian Marchant, who's a subscriber and listening in the car right now on his way to work. Oh, and if you have the chance, please rate and review the pod as it helps us find new listeners. Now Ian, keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel because the music's about to start. Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. As a member of the Canadian rock trio Triumph, Rick Emmett has sold millions of records and toured the world performing for millions more. Since leaving Triumph in 1988, Rick has enjoyed a successful solo recording career and until recently spent two decades as a faculty member at Humber College in his hometown of Toronto, where he taught songwriting, music business, creative development, and directed studies. Writing has always been a part of Rick's life, whether as a songwriter or as a regular contributor to Guitar Player magazine. In 2001, he self-published Bric-a-Brac, a book of short stories, poems, and unreleased lyrics. But now he's taken a unique approach to writing a memoir as a book of poetry called Reinvention. There's a kind of a distillation that must occur with poetry. You know, you're taking large ideas, and which is to say, fields of, of grain and turning them into whiskey. <laughs> you know, like you're really having to distill things. And, and you know, a metaphor is something that I've dealt with all my life as a songwriter. So as a poet, it certainly plays a large role in what I do. With 56 poems collected in seven sections, Reinvention shares stories from Rick's life, as well as his thoughts on religion, politics, and the general state of society today. The book also features tributes to a number of important people in his life, which is where we started our conversation, with Rick reading the poem about his grandfather titled 11 11 11 12. Once there was a war that didn't end all wars. My grandfather lied so he could go. I carry his name. Inflamed by the temper of the times, Dutiful boys donned the uniforms of men and sent 20 bucks of their monthly paychecks home to their mothers. His record shows that once there, he went absent without leave and got field punishment. Shackled to a cannon, close to no man's land, under fire. He never spoke of his tour of duty. War obliges us to confront the enemy within and without, immoral authority, chains of command, and the evil greed for power. On September 30, 1918, 42 days before the Bosch surrendered, they poisoned him with shell gas. He spent two weeks stretchered at Dancanier, then crossed the channel to Eastern General Hospital in Cambridge. 41 days later, he went to casualty clearance at Wokingham. Then they shipped him home for discharge, February 8, 1919. His war adventure lasted 24 months. My grandpa always smelled of cigarettes and candy mints. He liked fancy yardly soaps and palm slaps of Old Spice aftershave. Maybe 
to mask the teenaged memory of fetid stenches in harrowing trenches. I remember him as a sad, burdened, earnest man with kidney and gallstones, a bad ticker and an arthritic invalid wife who faded away in a Catholic chronic care hospital called Our Lady of Mercy. In 1965, he died on a Thursday morning in November, sitting in his coat in the front hall of his sister's house. I was 12 years old. He was gone forever, beyond knowing, beyond thinking, beyond feeling. His life, good, bad, and different, went from real to unreal, from significance to oblivion. Unrewarded, his passing awakened a questioning path in my adolescent mind and began the erosion of my faith in a God, in a heaven. I can't remember what I never knew. I can't forget all that I will never know. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful poem and a great tribute. And, uh, you know, we'll go through this, but I mean, you have done great tributes to a number of people throughout this book, and it's fant- really beautiful. So Thank you, you, Steve. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the creative process of how you went about putting this together and in a poetic form? Well, um, I'd always, I mean, I've always been a, a, a songwriter, so I've, all, I've always been a lyricist. And um, I've always had a, a gift for, for playing guitar and always loved the sort of lyrical, poetic approach to music making. Um, so it's not a giant leap to, to slide over into poetry and in many ways, it's kind of liberating because uh, in some ways you don't have to be striking the same forms, the same rhyme schemes that, you know, the discipline of songwriting is, is uh, you know, poetry writing gave me a little bit more license. And it's not like I didn't do poetry writing from time to time in the course of my life. I did. But it was, you know, this this side thing that every now and then I might, you know, do one in a, in a, in an old notebook because I, I keep spiral notebooks all the time for my songwriting. So, um, the, the real catalyst, there's a few so, and, and my grateful acknowledgements in the book, I had a lot of help and I had a lot of support. Um, so, um, one of the first ones was, uh, I was in some, uh, therapy, uh, with a, a lady in the West End of Toronto, Janice Carrera. And, and just as part and parcel of the therapy, I, I wrote a, a poem that's in the book called uh, Geologia Hominum. And, and it was about sort of trying to figure myself out. And uh, she didn't tell me to write it. It was just in the course of the thing, I thought I should write this and send it to Janice, <laughs> see what she thinks. And, you know, when she got back to me, she said, that's, that's really good. It's really, you know, there's a lot of insight there. It, that, that really functions on a lot of levels. It's good work. And, of course, you know, I'm like the seven-year-old kid in the pool going, hey, mommy, mommy, watch me. You know, it, you know and mommy goes, oh, you're great. And I go, oh, 
I'm great, you know. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of artists, they have that in them. You know, it's like you're just looking for approval. You're, you're looking for peer group acceptance, you, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, we're all damaged goods to a certain extent, one way or another. Um, so anyhow, that that's began my journey. Now, another thing, I had a guy, I have a, a, a members forum on my website where people they, they can send me emails and ask me anything they want. And, you know, their sort of annual membership allows them to be able to get directly to me with email and, uh, and I'll answer them, you know, in a public way on the forum. Also, it's not really public. It's kind of, it's private, but, but, uh, but it, it, it kind of moderates itself because it's in that medium. You know, I, if there's something I don't want to answer, I don't, you know, I find a way around it. Um, anyway, so there's a guy in there named Scott Michael Anderson. And uh, the guy, he's a poet. He writes poetry almost every day or, you know, at least twice a week kind of thing. He's also a photographer. And he's a really good one. And he posts up his work on the, on the members forum and I get to see it. And the guy is uh, prolific and he's disciplined. Like his shit's on there all the time. So, you know, uh, I thought he's doing it. Anyway, why can't I do it? You know, like if he can do it, I can do it, you know. So um, one thing led to another, and then I started, and, of course, COVID had come. I'd retired from the road, you know. Um, I retired from teaching at Humber. So it wasn't like I didn't have time to kill and, and things. What can you do in the privacy of your own room, you know? So and I was writing songs and stuff, too, but this the poetry started to kind of take over, and it kind of became my priority. For the first time in my life, writing poetry kind of became a priority thing. How would how do you when you decide that you're going to write a memoir? Why choose poetry as the vehicle? Well, you know, you've been around artists a lot in your life. I'm sure you've heard this before, but in many ways, uh, it's as if sometimes the art is picking me. I'm not picking it. It's just kind of starting to suggest itself in ways that I can't deny it or morph it or, you know, uh, mutate it into something. But, I mean, I do a lot of mutating. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a rock guy. But, of course, there's lots of people that will tell, tell you, no, he's not. You know, he, he doesn't know what he is. He plays jazz sometimes. He plays folk sometimes. He, you know, he... he, he switches styles and he does you know he, i once had a reviewer write he's just too talented for his own damn good and i started to use that in my bio because i went it's kind of true because and I, you know I, i'm not bragging here by saying too talented for his own good because it's a burden sometimes like I, you know i'm sure you've met artists and they're fucked up because they their gift is just a little too they can't come back down to earth enough. You know, they can't, or now they're, they, they need heroin because it's the only way that they can kind of get out of their pain. So poetry was a, something that was, you know, you've alluded to my, the poems about my brother and, 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 and the one about my grandfather. It's a way to say, it's a way to cope. It's a way to sort of try to come. And in some respects, 
it's just trying to express itself and that's the form it's taking. Like the poem about my brother, I didn't do a lot of thinking about that. That was a lot of feeling. And I think that's the way art works sometimes. You stand in front of the canvas and you feel it and you you let the feeling be the thing that makes the paint go where it goes, you know? And there's a very famous psychologist, Mikhail uh, Csikszentmihalyi, who's, you know, yeah, it's a mouthful. And he's a guy that did research about flow, which is an artistic state that you get in. And, you know, you're, you're, you're in a place where there's no time that, you know, you don't have to go to the bathroom. You don't have to eat. You, you're just, you're in this flow state and it happens to like, I think it's one of the things that musicians love so much when they're, you know, a good musician who really knows how to say improvise like a John Coltrane kind of guy, you know, he gets off the bandstand and he goes, I really liked where I was at 20 minutes ago up there. Give me some heroin so I can get back to that. So, you know, I, I do believe there's a, yeah, there, there's a thing that a human brain can do where it's finding connectivity from hemisphere to hemisphere. And uh, that sort of gives you a sense of, I don't know, flying, you know, like you're, you're not bound by this, mortal coil anymore you know were you intimidated at all about the idea of writing poetry because it's not like prose where you can just you know have words roll you know full sentences rolling out of your head there's a little bit more to writing poetry than writing straight prose at least in my adult mind there is (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i mean it's there's some pieces in there like there's a piece called Go Leafs Go, which I originally wrote it for uh, maybe a guy that you know too, Kevin yeah, Shea. Kevin Shea. Book about, yeah. yeah. And and it was prose, but it was kind of, it wasn't too hard to sort of turn it into poetry in a way mm-hmm. uh, because all writing is related in one way or another, you know, um, but I, I get your point. And yes, there's, there's a kind of a distillation that must occur with poetry, you know, you're taking large ideas and which is to say fields of, of grain and turning them into whiskey, <laughs> you know, like you're really having to distill things. And, and, you know, a metaphor is something that I've dealt with all my life as a songwriter. So as a poet, it certainly plays a large role in what I do. Sometimes it's a question of being naive, which allows you to find this kind of courage. And the courage of conviction is something that, you know, I mean, I, I write about it. I, I, I think about it a lot because when you're an artist, that's part of the juice that you go from, that, that you work from is saying, I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care if you don't like this. This is what I'm going to do. I mean, I've been asked, you know, in some interviews more than once about the whole process. And I realized that poetry for me at 68 years of age, I've just dipped a toe into the Pacific Ocean. It's a new Pacific Ocean. And I go, oh, God, like there's just so much. It, you know, It's like when you hear 
I don't know, Joe Pass play guitar or or Pat Metheny records. And I just go, oh, man, I'm such a piker. You know, there's such a huge amount. And, you know, uh, so, you know, you start writing poetry and then you re I read something and a poet recommends, well, you know, you got to read Foster Wallace. And I go, Foster Wallace, never heard of him. So Foster Wallace, I get the book, I start reading, I'm going, oh, okay, he won the Pulitzer in 59, but I'm sorry, I, I don't get this. Like, it's, this is, this is way beyond me, you know. Like, I need an oceanographer here now for this specific ocean, because I just don't, I don't get it, you know. And then you feel small and insignificant and foolish and all of the things where you're going, Oh, please, I hope they don't take me as a dilettante. You know, I hope this to come, I hope I don't get reviews where it's like, oh, yeah, the rock star thinks he can write poetry, you know, uh, which it's bound to happen, you know. But um, anyways, you know, there's that. It's funny because I think back to when we were kids and poetry to us was roses are red and violets are blue and there once was a girl from Nantucket. And so to, you know, at, at some point, you have to start understanding poetic license and you have to understand that there's more to poetry than just rhyming. Even songwriting, when I was um, younger and first getting into rock music, I always thought it's funny about, it's funny about um, rock and roll. It's like life, life rhymes when you're playing rock and roll. <laughs> life doesn't rhyme so much when you're not. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well said. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the thing that led me to being a musician was that music made sense of things when so much in life didn't make any sense at all, you know, to me. And when when I started to, well, I had music from a very, I was sang in the choir at church when I was a little kid, and, and um, music made sense. As, and as soon as I got a guitar in my hands, it was like, okay. And of course, all the Beatles were happening, all that stuff was going on so that culturally and socially, you know, music seemed to have a, a lot of good answers. But, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. And I think part of the, the thing about poetry was that brought me back around to it was that there's been a lot of good poets throughout the history of man. And you can kind of go back and you can start to really appreciate you know, what Shakespeare was doing when he was writing his sonnets and Ovid, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just, there's so, you can keep going back and you can realize, wow, you know, uh, okay. So before I check off of this place, this planet, you know, I think I want to see if I can't take a shot at being part of that lineage, that, that history, as opposed to just one that's a little bit more about English progressive rock bands, what Clapton and Page and Beck started, you know. I know that for me, that whenever I pick up the guitar, I can start putting chords together pretty easily and come up with a melody and a chord progression that is pleasing. And it's, as I've, as I've read from so many of you rock stars out there, it, it just seems to appear. When I try to write lyrics, which I'm horrible at, but when I try to write lyrics, it's a painstaking, long experience to try and tell a story as opposed to just 
throwing out a whole bunch of baby, baby, babies, and you know, I love your ways. And then, but then when I, I, I when I write prose, and like w- whether I'm writing a bio or sometimes when I'm writing a short story, it's much like what you said with regards to flow. I'll look at a, I'll look at a screen, and I'll just let it go, and I'll let the first word go and let it all come out. And so then it becomes sort of like playing the guitar. So you've gone through all these different processes. How is one to another compare comparable for you with regards to coming up with that, you know, chord progression on guitar, writing lyrics versus prose versus the poetry, which is, I presume the newest form that you're trying to deal with. Well, the newest form I'm trying to deal with is the actual memoir itself, because ECW, God bless them, didn't want to just put out a book of poetry because there's no money in that, you know. So they kind of go, well, will you give us two books? Can we? We'll do the poetry one for you so you can self-indulge. And then if you give us a memoir, and actually the memoir, it's really hard work, but for a whole other reason. But I'm going to answer your question and I'll get back to that. So, um process for me has never really defied the the cliche about perspiration and inspiration. Like I get a little bit of inspiration and then it's just going to be a lot of really hard work. And uh, I'm not afraid of that hard work. I like it. Like it's, it's, it's a discipline and, and a thing that I like. And even my wife would say, you know, he likes it a little too much. Like there's a life here. It would be nice if you, you know, put the dishes in the dishwasher a little more often and vacuumed a little more, you know. So um, I I think that uh, there's a selfishness to that process. And I just saw a fantastic interview. Uh, there's a guy online named Rick Beato, a, a producer guy out of Atlanta. And, you know, he's, he, he's kind of owning the internet lately when it comes to music. Uh, and quite rightly, you know, he's, he knows an awful lot of stuff and he, and he's, and he's really good at expressing it. And so he just, he's got a new one with Pat Metheny. It's an hour and 46 minutes long, but man, mm-hmm. I, I lapped it up because Metheny is sort of m- one of my heroes and, and one of the guys that I just think, wow, you know, if I, if I could only had, but you, you listen to Pat talk and Pat goes, man, no, it's, you, you think it's easy, but, you know, and Chet Atkins used to say, and I met Chet, uh, but that's another anecdote, but Chet used to say, it's like being a magician, really. Like, uh, what you're going to do is turn this trick of making something that's really hard be invisible. You, you make it look so easy. Don't, you know, like Chet was the kind of guy, he didn't even make faces when he played. I mean, you know guitar players we're always ah, you know making faces when we play not chet chet was like you know oh yeah this is I'm, I'm almost asleep here you know but what he was doing was incredibly difficult to do you know and um yeah i mean i i think you know 99 perspiration you know one percent inspiration i think that's kind of true and there's moments like I talk about flow. It's not like I wrote that poem about my brother and then didn't go back after and go, right, this is not exactly right. Oh, this should be a two-syllable thing instead of three. 
You see, I, like I'm really big about lyricism. I'm really big about flow, rhythm, you know. Uh, and I used to teach songwriting, and I used to tell people there's there's three main elements, okay? You got rhythm, you got melody, you got harmony. These are the three fundamental elements of music. And of these three, which rules supreme all the time? And it's rhythm. It's that's what good melody has good rhythm, good harmony has good rhythm. And Pat Metheny in his interview was saying, look, the drummer is the leader in the band. <laughs> like once we get on the bandstand, the drummer is the leader. And I've said that to guys in my band, like listen to what the hi-hat is doing. You're not, you don't have enough hi-hat in your monitor mix. Get more hi-hat, you know. Your, your time is critical, but your time must be tied to what that guy's doing back there, you know. So um, my poems, a lot of times, that's what I would come back to is how does, how does this feel? You know, what, how's the rhythm of this feel? So that's a common element to all of the work that I do. And that's the kind of the, the touchstone. You, you keep going back to that saying, does this feel right? You know, so poems are not much different than song lyrics in that regard. Um, even though, you, you know, sometimes you're, you're shooting at a different goal, the way you're getting there is work ethic is still the same. Right. You know, it, it's funny when you talk about how uh, ECW wants you to write your memoir. And obviously you know, people want to know about your life in rock and roll. And you seem to have summed it up pretty succinctly in, in four pieces <laughs> from invention to reinvention and parts one through four. That seems to like pretty much sum it up. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, and, and I, 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 I felt that way about the book of poetry. I felt like I was really being able to take care of a lot of things that I wanted to say, and I managed to do it in about 113 pages, you know, 120 pages. Like, I went, this is pretty good, you know, and it stands as a testament of things that I wanted people to know about my life. But, of course, it's not as specific as a memoir, as people would want a memoir to be. Right. You know, which is the difficulty I'm experiencing. I have, uh, as I said, I have this, you know, a fan forum, and I've been writing emails where people go, hey, Rick, like, so when you're uh, flying in in the helicopter to the US Festival, okay, what did it feel like, you know, questions that are, you know, just this side of Chris Farley talking to Paul McCartney. Remember that on Saturday Night Live? Go, like, yeah. It wasn't that great. You remember that? Wasn't that cool? Well, it, so anyways, it, it, memoirs have to touch yeah. on what other what other people are looking for, whereas the poetry could be more what this is really what I want to boil it down to. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's, it, yeah, no, it's it's interesting knowing that you're gonna you know write a fuller memoir because if people read this book, um, three times if they read <laughs> if, <laughs> if if they no if they if they read this, if they read this book and pay attention, you're not giving everything. You're not giving everything away, but you're providing keyholes for people to look through. And you've you've left you've left questions on the table that I think you can you know that you can answer more fully in a book of prose. But I think it's interesting because yeah, you have as I said, you've left keyholes. You can peer through the stuff and start to sort of see where your mind is at with regards to some of the issues that you've dealt with. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's uh, very accurate and, and fair. And uh, and I, I, you know, part of the thing about uh, writing the poetry is I was picking the keyhole and I was picking what you what angle you were going to see through it. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that there isn't a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and and now the memoir becomes this thing of I have thousands and thousands of pages of stuff. You know, now how do I br- how do I boil it down to make it be satisfying? But it's only going to be you know three hundred pages, you know three hundred odd pages. That's the challenge now because uh, I've had a pretty full life, Steve. <laughs> you know, like I really have, and I and I've been really lucky, really blessed. Um, because I was a rock star and, you know, got, if not to the top of the mountain, I, I, you know, I got up past the tree line, you know, like I did pretty good. And, and, um, then I quit because there was other things that I wanted to do, you know, that weren't about, you know, spandex pants and, and light shows. And then, and I started teaching and I taught for a couple of decades at Humber, which was, just an unbelievably, incredibly great experience. You know, I could have done without all the marking and the grading, you know, and I could have done without some of the politics of academia, but by and large, I mean, just to be able to hang out with a faculty that had people like that, that were that gifted and that dedicated and, and, and that deep, like it was, it was a beautiful thing, you know. And never mind that, you get students, and the students are kicking your ass and keeping you vital and current. And that was a beautiful gift, you know. So there's so much that I can write about in a memoir. You know, the the love affair with the guitar, you know, the writing, the, the business, you know, like there's just so many things. And I'm going to have to kind of boil all those up. And I'm thinking, this could turn into like, you know, five or six books. <laughs> the guitar one is not going to sell a lot either, but you know, there's definitely going to be a guitar book somewhere, you know, eventually. And the music business, as you and I, we can both attest to this. I mean, it's not the business it was when we got into it as young saplings, you know. Maybe part of that is that the, there's parts of the story, it doesn't matter anymore. They, I, you know, those aren't the parts that matter. They don't need to be told because. The world has changed anyhow, you know. So that's one of the things I'm coming to grips with in my graying old age. And by the way, over the last period of code, I had grown a full beard. And I looked like, uh, as my, my wife would say, you look like Santa Claus, you know. And uh, somebody else said, oh, geez, yeah, I saw your picture on the end. You look like Papa Smurf. <laughs> So I shaved it off, but but I might grow it back because I am kind of an old Santa Claus now, really. You know, there's a lot of shit I can get away with because I, you know, inherited my mother's skin and her youthful kind of look, but I'm an old gray beard now. So that's part of it, is there's a perspective thing that the poetry kind of opened a door for that, that it was like it's okay to be old. It's, you know, that that's part of what I was reinventing myself. It's like, I'm not a rock star anymore, and I'm not 30 years old anymore, and none of that really matters anymore, except that it gives context to 
I am now. It's it's funny because early in the book, uh, on the poem, Have a Good Day, it's so early in the book that you're basically saying, so settle in, but this is life. And now we'll go on. Yeah. You know, I yeah, can't... I mean, you know, uh, I, I think I think artists generally struggle philosophically because we can travel from the most mundane of things. You know, uh, we're doing a sound check and it's just nuts and bolts, you know, and, and now we're just trying to get something to eat, you know. We just, if we could only just get five or six hours of uninterrupted sleep, that would do us well, you know, uh, on this crazy adventure that we're on. So those are extremely practical things. At the same time, you're having all, like, oh, I'm going to change the world. I, I can make music that can change the world. It's as big as, your, as a dream can get, as ideals can get, you know. And I would tell people, oh, you start to write a song. You better be humble about this because you're staring into the face of God. Like th th this is an infinite pursuit you've begun. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes it so that artists are kind of, you know, one minute they're feeling very existential, you know, the next minute they're feeling very, you know, I don't know, you know, Freudian, Carl Jung. Yeah. Whatever. In that case, the, um, the book is a reflection of the artist's mind because that's certainly everything that you have in there, which, <laughs> I mean, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, but there's certainly a lot of religion throughout the book. There is certainly a lot of politics throughout the book. Um, is, it, is it fair to say that with regards to the tributes that you, again, give these guys that we've talked about your brothers your you know your father your grandfather gord downey that in each of the pieces that you've written there's also envy you're and en you're envious of the way they've lived their lives that they've made the most of their lives while they're on this earth envy is part of it although i see envy as um you know that's not a virtue that's a kind of a vice envy you know and, and I, I see it as dangerous. It's admiration. So I, I, I'm not sure I would say I was envious. I would say I was being respectful. I would say that I was being, um, I was honoring. I was trying to say, you know, the, the, I'm reminded of uh, Mark Antony making his speech in Shakespeare at Julius Caesar's funeral, you know. And oh, Brutus has let me talk. And like, noble guy, terrific guy, no Brutus there. But and I and Caesar, I know he was he was a bad guy. And he did all these good things, but but no, he was a bad guy, you know. So he's doing this thing where he's eulogizing Caesar in a way that you're saying he was human, you know, he 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 did some things that were the kinds of mistakes that humans make, the kinds of things, but they, they, you know, the other side of being human is that you get to do these really wonderful, extraordinary, virtuous things. So that, that uh, conflict between vice and virtue, like I'm trying to always come out on the virtuous side and give that benefit to anyone. I would give it to Trump as much as I hate his guts. 
I would I would still eventually say, yeah, but my job is to forgive the guy. My job is to find the, the, the virtuous positivity that exists in humanity. That's the that's our gig. That's that's our responsibility. You know, we 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 can't end up at each other's throats. We can't end up going to war. We can't end up interring the good with the man's bone. And and only the bad lives after him. That's the that's the Shakespearean thing. Like that's not true. You know, it's it's quite the opposite. Um, I'm curious, what is the timeline of these poems? What's the earliest poem? What's the latest poem that you've that it's included in here? You know, um, there are some in there. I think I added dates, so there's some that would maybe go back to 2007-ish. Um, I don't think I went too far back. Uh, there's a, a a lyric that I wrote called "Dear Diary." That was when I was teaching at the song workshop in, in, uh, in the summer. I wrote that one. I'd given my students uh, in, in one of my classes an assignment and said, you got to go write a song tonight. You got to go and write a tune. Uh, I don't care if it's finished, but you got to start and bring it to class tomorrow. And then I was at home and I was thinking, well, kind of unfair of me to do that to these people if I'm not going to do it myself. You know, so, okay, I better... So I literally had my birthday. I turned 54. So I wrote that song in one night. And, uh, I had, you know, I had, it wasn't a great song, but it, it was, you know, it was a snapshot of who I was on the day that I turned, day after I turned 54, you know. Yeah. So that that's the oldest one, I think. Um, so to that end, do you have um, in your mind, favorite lyrics that you've written over the years uh yeah but you know can i answer this question with the standard answer which is you're all my the next one is always the best one <laughs> you know, like if i didn't believe that my you know my greatest work is still ahead of me what what would make me get out of bed in the morning um and the other thing is again going back to this whole you know vice versus virtue stuff like i'm not great at 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 self-aggrandizement um in the sense of oh yeah here's a great one i wrote (laughs) yeah i'm not i'm I'm not i'm not looking for you to uh judge what your best is okay i'm really the question was do you have a favorite ah okay all right yeah um i would say there's a song that was on the spiral notebook called the longing which uh i feel i really did something right there uh, plus, I also opened up something that allowed me to become a better writer later. So I have a soft spot in my heart for that one. Uh, and I could pick a few songs here and there. You know, the first uh, really, really important song I wrote in Triumph, I think, was Ordinary Man on the Allied Forces album. Because it was unabashedly autobiographical. And it was uh, where I was saying, don't buy into this rock star thing. Like, you know, I'm I'm perfectly willing to play the part for you folks uh, because it's, it's the gig I signed up for, but you know, so that was a, that was a big change. That lyric was a big change for me. 
in, in terms of stuff. In his lifetime, Rick Emmett has been a son, a husband, a father, a guitarist, a songwriter, a rock star, a columnist, and a teacher. And now, add to that a published poet. Reinvention is available through ECW Press. If you want to find out more about Rick, his career, and the music and books he's created, simply visit rickemmett.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of The Creationists. Please tell your friends about it if you think they'd be interested in what we're doing. You can also follow The Creationist Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.